Section 45 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Horatio. Speeches likewise made use of to teach, advise, and inform others for their benefit, as well as to persuade them in our own behalf. Cleomenes. And so by the help of it men may accuse themselves and own their crimes, but nobody would have invented speech for those purposes. I speak of the design, the first motive and intention that put man upon speaking. We see in children that the first things they endeavor to express with words are their wants and their will, and their speech is but a confirmation of what they asked, denied, or affirmed by signs before. Horatio, but why do you imagine that people would continue to make use of signs and gestures after they could sufficiently express themselves in words? Cleomenes, because signs confirm words, as much as words do signs, and we see, even in polite people, that when they are very eager they can hardly forbear making use of both. When an infant, in broken, imperfect gibberish, calls for a cake or a plaything, and at the same time points at and reaches after it, this double endeavor makes a stronger impression upon us than if the child had spoke its wants in plain words, without making any signs or else looked at it and reached after the thing wanted, without attempting to speak. Speech and action assist and corroborate one another, and experience teaches us that they move us much more, and are more persuasive jointly than separately. Vis unita fortior. And when an infant makes use of both, he acts from the same principle that an orator does when he joins proper gestures to an elaborate declamation. Horatio. From what you have said it should seem that action is not only more natural, but likewise more ancient than speech itself, which before I should have thought a paradox. Cleomenes, yet it is true, and you shall always find that the most forward, volatile, and fiery tempers make more use of gestures when they speak than others that are more patient and sedate. Horatio, it is a very diverting scene to see how this is overdone among the French, and still more among the Portuguese. I have often been amazed to see what distortions of face and body, as well as other strange gesticulations with hands and feet, some of them will make in their ordinary discourses. But nothing was more offensive to me, when I was abroad, than the loudness and violence which most foreigners speak with, even among persons of quality, when a dispute arises, or anything is to be debated. Before I was used to it, it put me always upon my guard." for I did not question but they were angry, and I often recollected what had been said in order to consider whether it was not something I ought to have resented. Cleomenes, the natural ambition and strong desire men have to triumph over, as well as persuade others, are the occasion of all this. Heightening and lowering the voice at proper seasons is a bewitching engine to captivate mean understandings, and loudness is an assistant to speech as well as action is. Uncorrectness, false grammar, and even want of sense are often happily drowned in noise and great bustle, and many an argument has been convincing that had all its force from the vehemence it was made with. The weakness of the language itself may be palliatively cured by strength of elocution. Horatio, I am glad that speaking low is the fashion among well-bred people in England, for bawling and impetuosity I cannot endure. Cleomenes, Yet this latter is more natural, 
and no man ever gave in to the contrary practice, the fashion you like, that was not taught it either by precept or example. And if men do not accustom themselves to it whilst they are young, it is very difficult to comply with it afterwards. But it is the most lovely, as well as most rational piece of good manners that human invention has to boast of in the art of flattery. For when a man addresses himself to me in a calm manner, without making gestures or other motions with head or body, and continues his discourse in the same submissive strain and composure of voice, without exalting or depressing it, he, in the first place, displays his own modesty and humility in an agreeable manner, and, in the second, makes me a great compliment in the opinion which he seems to have of me, for by such a behavior he gives me the pleasure to imagine that he thinks me not influenced by my passions, but altogether swayed by my reason. He seems to lay his stress on my judgment, and therefore to desire that I should weigh and consider what he says without being ruffled or disturbed. No man would do this unless he trusted entirely to my good sense and the rectitude of my understanding. Horatio, I have always admired this unaffected manner of speaking, though I never examined so deeply into the meaning of it. Cleomenes, I cannot help thinking, but that, next to the laconic and manly spirit that runs through the nation, we are very much beholden for the strength and beauty of our language to this tranquility in discourse, which for many years has been in England more than anywhere else, a custom peculiar to the beau monde, who, in all countries, are the undoubted refiners of language. Horatio, I thought it was the preachers, playwrights, orators, and fine writers that refined upon language. Cleomenes, they make the best of what is already coined to their hands, but the true and only mint of words and phrases is the court, and the polite part of every nation are in possession of the jus et norma loquendi. All technic words, indeed, and terms of art, belong to the respective artists and dealers, that primarily and literally make use of them in their business, but whatever is borrowed from them for metaphorical use, or from other languages, living or dead, must first have the stamp of the court, and the approbation of beau monde, before it can pass for current, and whatever is not used among them, or comes abroad without their sanction, is either vulgar, pedantic, or obsolete. Orders, therefore, historians, and all wholesale dealers in words, are confined to those that have been already well received, and from that treasure they may pick and choose what is most for their purpose, but they are not allowed to make new ones of their own, any more than bankers are suffered to coin. Horatio. All this while I cannot comprehend what advantage or disadvantage speaking loud or low can be of to the language itself, and if what I am saying now was set down, it must be a real conjurer that, half a year hence, should be able to tell by the writing whether it had been bawled out or whispered. Cleomenes, I am of opinion that when people of skill and address accustom themselves to speak in the manner aforesaid, it must in time have an influence upon the language and render it strong and expressive. Horatio, but your reason? Cleomenes, when a man has only his words to trust to, and the hearer is not to be affected by the delivery of them, otherwise than if he was to read them himself, it will infallibly put men upon studying not only for nervous thoughts and perspicuity, but likewise for words of great energy, for purity of diction, compactness of style, and fullness, as well as elegancy of expressions. Horatio, this seems to be far-fetched, 
and yet I do not know but there may be something in it. Cleomenes, when you consider that men do speak and are equally desirous and endeavoring to persuade and gain the point they labor for, whether they speak loud or low, with gestures or without. Horatio, speech, you say, was invented to persuade. I am afraid you lay too much stress upon that. It certainly is made use of likewise for many other purposes. Cleomenes, I do not deny that. Horatio, when people scold, call names, and pelt one another with scurrilities, what design is that done with? If it be to persuade others, to have a worse opinion of themselves than they are supposed to entertain, I believe it is seldom done with success. Cleomenes, calling names is showing others, and showing them with pleasure and ostentation, the vile and wretched opinion we have of them, and persons that make use of opprobrious language are often endeavoring to make those whom they give it to believe that they think worse of them than they really do. Horatio, worse than they do? Whence does that ever appear? Cleomenes, from the behavior and the common practice of those that scold and call names, they rip up and exaggerate not only the faults and imperfections of their adversary himself, but likewise everything that is ridiculous or contemptible in his friends or relations. They will fly to and reflect upon everything which he is but in the least concerned in, if anything can possibly be said of it that is reproachful, the occupation he follows, the party he sides with, or the country he is of. They repeat with joy the calamities and misfortunes that have befallen him or his family. They see the justice of providence in them, and they are sure they are punishments he has deserved. Whatever crime he has been suspected of, they charge him with, as if it had been proved upon him. They call in everything to their assistance, bare surmises, loose reports, and known calumnies, and often abrade him with what they themselves at other times have owned not to believe. Horatio, but how comes the practice of scolding and calling names to be so common among the vulgar all the world over? There must be a pleasure in it, though I cannot conceive it. I ask to be informed, what satisfaction or other benefit is it that men receive or expect from it? What view is it done with? Cleomenes, the real cause and inward motive men act from when they use ill language or call names in earnest is, in the first place, to give vent to their anger, which it is troublesome to stifle and conceal. Secondly, to vex and afflict their enemies with greater hopes of impunity than they could reasonably entertain if they did them any more substantial mischief which the law would revenge. But this never comes to be a custom nor is thought of before languages arrive to great perfection, and society is carried to some degree of politeness. Horatio, that is merry enough, to assert that scurrility is the effect of politeness. Cleomenes, you shall call it what you please, but in its original it is a plain shift to avoid fighting, and the ill consequences of it, for nobody ever called another rogue and rascal, but he would have struck him if it had been in his power, and himself had not been withheld by the fear of something or other. Therefore, where people call names without doing further injury, it is a sign not only that they have wholesome laws amongst them against open force and violence, but likewise that they obey and stand in awe of them. And a man begins to be a tolerable subject, and is nigh half civilized, that in his passion will take up and content himself with this paltry equivalent, which never was done without great self-denial at first for otherwise the obvious, ready, and unstudied manner of venting and expressing anger, which nature teaches, 
is the same in human creatures that it is in other animals, and is done by fighting, as we may observe in infants two or three months old that never yet saw anybody out of humor, for even at that age they will scratch, fling, and strike with their heads as well as arms and legs when anything raises their anger, which is easily and at most times unaccountably provoked, often by hunger, pain, and other inward ailments. That they do this by instinct, something implanted in the frame, the mechanism of the body before any marks of wit or reason are to be seen in them, I am fully persuaded, as I am likewise that nature teaches them the manner of fighting peculiar to their species, and children strike with their arms as naturally as horses kick, dogs bite, and bulls push with their horns. I beg your pardon for this digression. Horatio, it was natural enough, but if it had been less so, you would not have slipped the opportunity of having a fling at human nature, which you never spare. Cleomenes, we have not a more dangerous enemy than our own inborn pride. I shall ever attack and endeavor to mortify it when it is in my power, for the more we are persuaded that the greatest excellencies the best men have to boast of are acquired, the greater stress it will teach us to lay upon education, and the more truly solicitous it will render us about it. And the absolute necessity of good and early instructions can be no way more clearly demonstrated than by exposing the deformity as well as the weakness of our untaught nature. Horatio, let us return to speech. If the chief design of it is to persuade, the French have got the start of us a great way. Theirs is really a charming language. Cleomenes. So it is, without doubt, to a Frenchman. Horatio. And everybody else, I should think, that understands it and has any taste. Do you not think it to be very engaging? Cleomenes. Yes, to one that loves his belly, for it is very copious in the art of cookery and everything that belongs to eating and drinking. Horatio. But without banter, do you not think that the French tongue is more proper, more fit to persuade in than ours? Cleomenes, to coax and wheedle in, I believe it may. Horatio, I cannot conceive what nicety it is you aim at in that distinction. Cleomenes, the word you named includes no idea of reproach or disparagement. The greatest capacities may, without discredit to them, yield to persuasion as well as the least. But those who can be gained by coaxing and wheedling are commonly supposed to be persons of mean parts and weak understandings. Horatio, but pray come to the point, which of the two do you take to be the finest language? Cleomenes, that is hard to determine. Nothing is more difficult than to compare the beauties of two languages together, because what is very much esteemed in the one is often not relished at all in the other. In this point, the pulchrum et honestum varies, and is different everywhere as the genius of people differs. I do not set up for a judge, but what I have commonly observed in the two languages is this. All favorite expressions in French are such as either soothe or tickle, and nothing is more admired in English than what pierces or strikes. Horatio, do you take yourself to be entirely impartial now? Cleomenes, I think so, but if I am not, I do not know how to be sorry for it. There are some things in which it is the interest of the society that men should be biased, and I do not think it amiss that men should be inclined to love their own language from the same principle that they love their country. The French call us barbarous, and we say they are fawning. I will not believe the first. Let them believe what they please. 
Do you remember the six lines in the Cid, which Cornier is said to have had a present of six thousand livres for? Horatio, very well. Mon père est mort, Elvira, il a premier épée, ton cette armée, Rodrigue, a sa trame coupée, pleurez, pleurez, mes yeux, y fondez-vous en où, la moitié de ma vie a mis l'autre tombeau, il m'oblige à venger, après ce coup funeste, celle que je n'ai plus sur celle qui me reste. Cleomenes, the same thought expressed in our language, to all the advantage it has in French, would be hissed by an English audience. Horatio, that is no compliment to the taste of your country. Cleomenes, I do not know that. Men may have no bad taste, and yet not be so ready at conceiving which way one half of one's life can put the other into the grave. To me, I own it is puzzling, and it has too much the air of a riddle to be seen in heroic poetry. Horatio, can you find no delicacy at all in the thought? Cleomenes, yes, but it is too fine spun. It is the delicacy of a cobweb. There is no strength in it. Horatio, I have always admired these lines, but now you have made me out of conceit with them. Methinks I spy another fault that is much greater. Cleomenes, what is that? Horatio, the author makes his heroine say a thing which was false in fact. One half, says she men, of my life has put the other into the grave, and obliges me to revenge, etc. Which is the nominative of the verb obliges? Cleomenes, one half of my life. Horatio, here lies the fault. It is this, which I think is not true. For the one half of her life, here mentioned, is plainly that half which was left. It is Rodriguez, her lover. Which way did he oblige her to seek for revenge? Cleomenes, by what he had done, killing her father. Horatio, no, Cleomenes, this excuse is insufficient. Shimen's calamity sprung from the dilemma she was in between her love and her duty. When the latter was inexorable, and violently pressing her to solicit the punishment, and employ with zeal all her interest and eloquence to obtain the death of him whom the first had made dearer to her than her own life. And therefore it was the half that was gone, that was put in the grave, her dead father, and not Rodriguez which obliged her to sue for justice. Had the obligations she lay under come from this quarter, it might soon have been cancelled, and herself released without crying out her eyes. Cleomenes, I beg pardon for differing from you, but I believe the poet is in the right. Horatio, pray, consider which it was that made Chimen prosecute Rodriguez, love or honor. Cleomenes, I do, but still I cannot help thinking but that her lover, by having killed her father, obliged Chimen to persecute him, in the same manner as a man, who will give no satisfaction to his creditors, obliges them to arrest him, or as we would say, to a coxcomb, who is offending us with his discourse, If you go on thus, sir, you will oblige me to treat you ill, though all this while the debtor might be as little desirous of being arrested and the coxcomb of being ill-treated as Rodriguez was of being prosecuted. Horatio, I believe you are in the right, and I beg Corniel's pardon. But now I desire you would tell me what you have further to say of society. What other advantages do multitudes receive from the invention of letters, besides the improvements it makes in their laws and language? Cleomenes, it is an encouragement to all other inventions in general, by preserving the knowledge of every useful improvement that is made. 
when laws begin to be well known and the execution of them is facilitated by general approbation, multitudes may be kept in tolerable concord among themselves. It is then that it appears, and not before, how much the superiority of man's understanding beyond other animals contributes to his sociableness, which is only retarded by it in his savage state. Horatio, how so, pray? I do not understand you. Cleomenes, the superiority of understanding, in the first place, makes man sooner sensible of grief and joy, and capable of entertaining either with greater difference as to the degrees than they are felt in other creatures. Secondly, it renders him more industrious to please himself, that is, it furnishes self-love with a greater variety of shifts to exert itself on all emergencies, than is made use of by animals of less capacity. Superiority of understanding likewise gives us a foresight and inspires us with hopes of which other creatures have little, and that only of things immediately before them. All these things are so many tools, arguments, by which self-love reasons us into content and renders us patient under many afflictions for the sake of supplying those wants that are most pressing. This is of infinite use to a man who finds himself born in a body politic, and it must make him fond of society, whereas the same endowment before that time, the same superiority of understanding in the state of nature, can only serve to render man incurably averse to society, and more obstinately tenacious of his savage liberty than any other creature would be that is equally necessitous. Horatio, I do not know how to refute you. There is a justness of thought in what you say, which I am forced to assent to. And yet it seems strange. How come you by this insight into the heart of man, and which way is that skill of unraveling human nature to be obtained? Cleomenes, by diligently observing what excellencies and qualifications are really acquired in a well-accomplished man, and having done this impartially, we may be sure that the remainder of him is nature. It is for want of duly separating and keeping asunder these two things that men have uttered such absurdities on this subject, alleging as the cause of man's fitness for society such qualifications as no man ever was endued with that was not educated in a society, a civil establishment of several hundred years' standing. But the flatterers of our species keep this carefully from our view, instead of separating what is acquired from what is natural, and distinguishing between them, they take pains to unite and confound them together. Horatio, why do they? I do not see the compliment, since the acquired as well as natural parts belong to the same person, and the one is not more inseparable from him than the other. Cleomenes, nothing is so near to a man, nor so really and entirely his own, as what he has from nature, and when that dear self, for the sake of which he values or despises, loves or hates everything else, comes to be stripped and abstracted from all foreign acquisitions, human nature makes a poor figure. It shows a nakedness, or at least an undress, which no man cares to be seen in. There is nothing we can be possessed of that is worth having, which we do not endeavor closely to annex, and make an ornament of to ourselves. Even wealth and power, and all the gifts of fortune, are plainly adventitious, and altogether remote from our persons. Whilst they are our right and property, we do not love to be considered without them. We see likewise that men, who are come to be great in the world from despicable beginnings, do not love to hear of their origin. Horatio, that is no general rule. 
Cleomenes, I believe it is, though there may be exceptions from it, and these are not without reasons. When a man is proud of his parts, and wants to be esteemed for his diligence, penetration, quickness, and assiduity, he will make perhaps an ingenious confession even to the exposing of his parents, and in order to set off the merit that raised him, bespeaking himself of his original meanness. But this is commonly done before inferiors, whose envy will be lessened by it, and who will applaud his candor and humility in owning this blemish. But not a word of this before his betters, who value themselves upon their families. And such men could heartily wish their parentage was unknown, whenever they are with those that are their equals in quality, though superior to them in birth, by whom they know that they are hated for their advancement, and despised for the lowness of their extraction. But I have a shorter way of proving my assertion. Pray, is it good manners to tell a man that he is meanly born, or to hint at his descent, when it is known to be vulgar? Horatio, no, I do not say it is. Cleomenes, that decides it, by showing the general opinion about it. Noble ancestors, and everything else that is honorable and esteemed, and can be drawn within our sphere, are an advantage to our persons, and we all desire they should be looked upon as our own. Horatio. Ovid did not think so, when he said, Nam genus et proavos et, quae non fessimus ipsi, vix ea nostra voco. Cleomenes. A pretty piece of modesty in a speech where a man takes pains to prove that Jupiter was his great-grandfather. What signifies a theory which a man destroys by his practice? Did you ever know a person of quality pleased with being called a bastard, though he owed his being, as well as his greatness, chiefly to his mother's impudicity? Horatio, by things acquired, I thought you meant learning and virtue. How come you to talk of birth and descent? Cleomenes, by showing you that men are unwilling to have anything that is honorable separated from themselves, though it is remote from, and has nothing to do with their persons. I would convince you of the little probability there is that we should be pleased with being considered, abstract from what really belongs to us, and qualifications that in the opinion of the best and wisest are the only things for which we ought to be valued. When men are well accomplished, they are ashamed of the lowest steps from which they rose to that perfection, and the more civilized they are, the more they think it injurious to have their nature seen, without the improvements that have been made upon it. The most correct authors would blush to see everything published, which in the composing of their works they blotted out and stifled, and which yet it is certain they once conceived. For this reason they are justly compared to architects, that remove the scaffolding before they show their buildings. All ornaments bespeak the value we have for the things adorned, do you not think that the first red or white that ever was laid upon a face, and the first false hair that was wore, were put on with great secrecy and with a design to deceive? Horatio, in France, painting is now looked upon as a part of a woman's dress. They make no mystery of it. Cleomenes, so it is with all the impositions of this nature, when they come to be so gross that they can be hid no longer, as men's perukes all over Europe. But if these things could be concealed, and were not known, the tawny coquette would hardly wish that the ridiculous daubing she plasters herself with might pass for complexion, and the bald-pated beau would be as glad to have his full-bottomed wig looked upon as a natural head of hair. Nobody puts in artificial teeth but to hide the loss of his own. Horatio, 
But is not a man's knowledge a real part of himself? Cleomenes, yes, and so is his politeness, but neither of them belong to his nature, any more than his gold watch or his diamond ring, and even from these he endeavors to draw a value and respect to his person, the most admired among the fashionable people that delight in outward vanity, and to know how to dress well, would be highly displeased if their clothes, and skill in putting them on, should be looked upon otherwise than as part of themselves. Nay, it is this part of them only which, whilst they are unknown, can procure them access to the highest companies, the courts of princes, where it is manifest that both sects are either admitted or refused by no other judgment than what is formed of them from their dress, without the least regard to their goodness or their understanding. Horatio, I believe I apprehend you. It is our fondness of that self, which we hardly know what it consists in, that could first make us think of embellishing our persons, and when we have taken pains in correcting, polishing, and beautifying nature, the same self-love makes us unwilling to have the ornaments seen separately from the thing adorned. Cleomenes, the reason is obvious. It is that self we are in love with, before it is adorned, as well as after, and everything which is confessed to be acquired seems to point at our original nakedness, and to upbraid us with our natural wants. I would say, the meanness and deficiency of our nature. That no bravery is so useful in war as that which is artificial is undeniable. Yet the soldier, that by art and discipline has manifestly been tricked and wheedled into courage, after he has behaved himself in two or three battles with intrepidity, will never endure to hear that he has not natural valor, though all his acquaintance, as well as himself, remember the time that he was an errant coward. Horatio, but since the love, affection, and benevolence we naturally have for our species is not greater than other creatures have for theirs, how comes it that man gives more ample demonstrations of this love on thousand occasions than any other animal? Cleomenes, because no other animal has the same capacity or opportunity to do it, but you may ask the same of his hatred. The greater knowledge and the more wealth and power a man has, the more capable he is of rendering others sensible of the passion he is affected with, as well when he hates as when he loves them. The more a man remains uncivilized, and the less he is removed from the state of nature, the less his love is to be depended upon. Horatio, there is more honesty and less deceit among plain untaught people than there is among those that are more artful and therefore I should have looked for true love and unfeigned affection among those that live in a natural simplicity, rather than anywhere else. Cleomenes, you speak of sincerity, but the love which I said was less to be depended upon in untaught than in civilized people, I suppose to be real and sincere in both. Artful people may dissemble love, and pretend to friendship where they have none, but they are influenced by their passions and natural appetites as well as savages, though they gratify them in another manner. Well-bred people behave themselves in the choice of diet and the taking of their repasts, very differently from savages. So they do in their amours, but hunger and lust are the same in both. An artful man, nay, the greatest hypocrite, whatever his behavior is abroad, may love his wife and children at his heart, and the sincerest man can do no more. My business is to demonstrate to you that the good qualities men complement our nature and the whole species with are the result of art and education. The reason why love is little to be depended upon in those that are uncivilized 
is because the passions in them are more fleeting and inconstant. They oftener jostle out and succeed one another than they are and do in well-bred people. Persons that are well-educated have learned to study their ease and the comforts of life, to tie themselves up to rules and decorums for their own advantage, and often to submit to small inconveniencies to avoid greater. Among the lowest vulgar, and those of the meanest education of all, you seldom see a lasting harmony. You shall have a man and his wife that have a real affection for one another, be full of love one hour, and disagree the next for a trifle, and the lives of many are made miserable from no other faults in themselves than their want of manners and discretion. Without design they will often talk imprudently, until they raise one another's anger, which neither of them being able to stifle, she scolds at him, he beats her, she bursts out into tears, this moves him, he is sorry, both repent and are friends again, and with all the sincerity imaginable resolve never to quarrel for the future, as long as they live. All this will pass between them in less than half a day, and will perhaps be repeated once a month, or oftener, as provocations offer, or either of them is more or less prone to anger. Affection never remained long uninterrupted between two persons without art, and the best friends, if they are always together, will fall out, unless great discretion be used on both sides. Horatio, I have always been of your opinion that the more men were civilized, the happier they were. But since nations can never be made polite but by length of time, and mankind must have always been miserable before they had written laws, how come poets and others to launch out so much in praise of the golden age, in which they pretend there was so much peace, love, and sincerity? Cleomenes, for the same reason that heralds compliment obscure men of unknown extraction with illustrious pedigrees, as there is no mortal of high descent but who values himself upon his family, so extolling the virtue and happiness of their ancestors can never fail pleasing every member of a society." But what stress would you lay upon the fictions of poets? Horatio, you reason very clearly, and with great freedom, against all heathen superstition, and never suffer yourself to be imposed upon by any fraud from that quarter. But when you meet with anything belonging to the Jewish or Christian religion, you are as credulous as any of the vulgar. Cleomenes, I am sorry you should think so. Horatio, what I say is fact. A man that contentedly swallows everything that is said of Noah and his ark ought not to laugh at the story of Deucalion and Pyrrha. Cleomenes, is it as credible that human creatures should spring from stones because an old man and his wife threw them over their heads, as that a man and his family with a great number of birds and beasts should be preserved in a large ship made convenient for that purpose? Horatio, but you are partial. What odds is there between a stone and a lump of earth for either of them to become a human creature? I can as easily conceive how a stone should be turned into a man or a woman as how a man or a woman should be turned into a stone. And I think it not more strange that a woman should be changed into a tree, as was Daphne, or into marble, as Niobe, than that she should be transformed into a pillar of salt, as the wife of Lot was. Pray suffer me to catechize you a little." Cleomenes, you will hear me afterwards, I hope. Horatio, yes, yes. Do you believe in Hesiod? Cleomenes, no. Horatio, Ovid's Metamorphosis? Cleomenes, no. Horatio, but you believe the story of Adam and Eve and Paradise? Cleomenes, yes. Horatio, 
that they were produced at once, I mean at their full growth, he from a lump of earth, and she from one of his ribs? Cleomenes, yes, Horatio, and that as soon as they were made they could speak, reason, and were endued with knowledge? Cleomenes, yes. Horatio, in short, you believe the innocence, the delight, and all the wonders of paradise that are related by one man, at the same time that you will not believe what has been told us by many of the uprightness, the concord, and the happiness of a golden age. Cleomenes, that is very true. Horatio, now give me leave to show you how unaccountable as well as partial you are in this. In the first place, the things naturally impossible which you believe are contrary to your own doctrine, the opinion you have laid down, and which I believe to be true, for you have proved that no man would ever be able to speak unless he was taught it, that reasoning and thinking come upon us by slow degrees, and that we can know nothing that has not from without been conveyed to the brain, and communicated to us through the organs of the senses. Secondly, in what you reject as fabulous, there is no manner of improbability. We know from history and daily experience teaches us that almost all the wars and private quarrels that have at any time disturbed mankind have had their rise from the differences about superiority and the meum et tuum. Therefore, before cunning, covetousness, and deceit crept into the world, before titles of honor and the distinction between servant and master were known, why might not moderate numbers of people have lived together in peace and amity when they enjoyed everything in common, and have been content with the product of the earth in a fertile soil and a happy climate? Why cannot you believe this? Cleomenes, because it is inconsistent with the nature of human creatures that any number of them should ever live together in tolerable concord without laws or government, let the soil, the climate, and their plenty be whatever the most luxuriant imagination shall be pleased to fancy them. But Adam was altogether the workmanship of God, a preternatural production. His speech and knowledge, his goodness and innocence were as miraculous as every other part of his frame. Horatio Indeed, Cleomenes, this is insufferable. When we are talking philosophy, you foist in miracles. Why may not I do the same, and lay that the people of the Golden Age were made happy by miracle? Cleomenes, it is more probable that one miracle should, at a stated time, have produced a male and female, from whom all the rest of mankind are descended in a natural way, than that by a continued series of miracles several generations of people should have all been made to live and act contrary to their nature. For this must follow from the account we have of the golden and silver ages. In Moses, the first natural man, the first that was born of a woman, by envying and slaying his brother, gives an ample evidence of the domineering spirit and the principle of sovereignty which I have asserted to belong to our nature. Horatio, you will not be counted credulous, and yet you believe all those stories, which even some of our divines have called ridiculous, if literally understood. But I do not insist upon the golden age, if you will give up paradise. A man of sense, and a philosopher, should believe neither. Cleomenes, yet you have told me that you believed the Old and New Testament. Horatio, I never said that I believed everything that is in them, in a literal sense. But why should you believe miracles at all? Cleomenes, because I cannot help it, and I promise never to mention the name to you again, if you can show me the bare possibility that man could ever have been produced, brought into the world without miracle. Do you believe there ever was a man who had made himself? Horatio, no, that is a plain contradiction. Cleomenes, 
then it is manifest the first man must have been made by something. And what I say of man, I may say of all matter and motion in general. The doctrine of Epicurus, that everything is derived from the concourse and fortuitous jumble of atoms, is monstrous and extravagant beyond all other follies. Horatio, yet there is no mathematical demonstration against it. Cleomenes, nor is there one to prove that the sun is not in love with the moon, if one had a mind to advance it, and yet I think it a greater reproach to human understanding to believe either than it is to believe the most childish stories that are told of fairies and hobgoblins. Horatio, but there is an axiom very little inferior to a mathematical demonstration, ex nihilo nihil fit, that is directly clashing with and contradicts the creation out of nothing. Do you understand how something can come from nothing? Cleomenes, I do not, I confess, any more than I can comprehend eternity or the deity itself. But when I cannot comprehend what my reason assures me must necessarily exist, there is no axiom or demonstration clearer to me than that the fault lies in my want of capacity, the shallowness of my understanding. From the little we know of the sun and stars, their magnitudes, distances, and motion, and what we are more nearly acquainted with, the gross visible parts in the structure of animals and their economy, it is demonstrable that they are the effects of an intelligent cause and the contrivance of a being infinite in wisdom as well as power. Horatio. But let wisdom be as superlative and power as extensive as it is possible for them to be. Still it is impossible to conceive how they should exert themselves unless they had something to act upon. Cleomenes. This is not the only thing which, though it be true, we are not able to conceive. How came the first man to exist? And yet here we are. Heat and moisture are the plain effects from manifest causes, and though they bear a great sway, even in the mineral as well as the animal and vegetable world, yet they cannot produce a sprig of grass without a previous seed. Horatio, as we ourselves and everything we see, are the undoubted parts of some whole, some are of opinion that this all, the tol pan, the universe, was from all eternity. Cleomenes, this is not more satisfactory or comprehensible than the system of Epicurus, who derives everything from wild chance and an undesigned struggle of senseless atoms. When we behold things which our reason tells us could not have been produced without wisdom and power, in a degree far beyond our comprehension, can anything be more contrary to, or clashing with that same reason, than that the things in which that high wisdom and great power are visibly displayed should be coeval with the wisdom and power themselves that contrived and wrought them? Yet this doctrine, which is Spinozism in epitome, after having been neglected many years, begins to prevail again, and the atoms lose ground. For of atheism, as well as superstition, there are different kinds that have their periods and returns, after they have been long exploded. Horatio, what makes you couple together two things so diametrically opposite? Cleomenes, there is greater affinity between them than you imagine. They are of the same origin. Horatio, what, atheism and superstition? Cleomenes, yes, indeed. They both have their rise from the same cause, the same defect in the mind of man, our want of capacity in discerning truth, and natural ignorance of the divine essence. Men that from their most early youth have not been imbued with the principles of the true religion, and have not afterwards continued to be strictly educated in the same, are all in great danger of falling either into the one or the other, 
according to the difference there is in the temperament and complexion they are of, the circumstances they are in, and the company they converse with, weak minds, and those that are brought up in ignorance and a low condition, such as are much exposed to fortune, men of slavish principles, the covetous and mean-spirited, are all naturally inclined to, and easily susceptible of superstition, and there is no absurdity so gross, nor contradiction so plain, which the dregs of the people, most gamesters, and nineteen women in twenty, may not be taught to believe, concerning invisible causes. Therefore multitudes are never tainted with irreligion, and the less civilized nations are, the more boundless is their credulity. On the contrary, men of parts and spirit, of thought and reflection, the asserters of liberty, such as meddle with mathematics and natural philosophy, most inquisitive men, the disinterested that live in ease and plenty, if their youth has been neglected, and they are not well grounded in the principles of true religion, are prone to infidelity, especially such amongst them whose pride and sufficiency are greater than ordinary. And if persons of this sort fall into hands of unbelievers, they run great hazard of becoming atheists or skeptics. End of section 45